0: I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be together as God's people. As you've heard, uh, we welcome you and and are thankful that you're joining us this morning. Um, If you have a Bible or if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Uh, If you're using one of the church Bibles, you could turn to page 884. 884. And during this Lent season, as Adrian reminded us we're in the second Sunday of Lent, and we've been looking at the last words of Jesus as He hung on the cross. Last week, we began with the first words that Jesus uttered, which was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this was important to look at because this is really the primary purpose and mission of why Jesus came into our world. It's not enough whether you are a follower of Jesus or you are other than Christian and you're investigating the faith of Christianity. It's not enough just to know that Jesus died. But we actually have to understand why. What was the purpose? And these seven words of Jesus helps us to understand the purpose in why he had to die and sacrifice himself for us. And so that's what we're going to be doing over these seven weeks, looking at the words of Jesus that he uttered as he hung on the cross. Today, we'll be looking at the second word. And I'm going to invite Natalie Wolfe. We prayed for her and her family this morning. And she's going to read uh, this scripture for us from chapter 23, verse 32 to, through 33. And then she's going to jump down to 39 to 43. So let's give attention. Why don't you come over here? That one doesn't record for some reason. So let's give attention to God's word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they, were, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, that though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word stands forever. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning as we Look at the second word that you uttered, then we'd be able to be transformed, not because of anything that I say this morning, but because of your words alone. Holy Spirit, do that good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As a kid, one of the things that I hated, and many, maybe some of you kids also or adults also don't enjoy, is going to the doctor's office, right? The doctor's office or the dentist is still one of the things that I do not look forward to. But as a kid, there was one thing that actually gave me hope when I would go to the doctor's office or to the dentist's office. And it was this thing called, it was a magazine called Highlights. Who's familiar with Highlights? Yeah, some of us older folks, you know, me included, we remember this magazine. My parents were too cheap to subscribe it for us, even though I would ask them, but so this was the one place that I could enjoy this kid's magazine and the reason I loved it was because towards the back of the magazine or maybe it was on the back cover was this one activity that I would always do and it was these two pictures that looked very similar very similar because you were your activi- activity or job was to point out the five or six differences between the two pictures now. Every time I would do it and finish it and find the differences, I would feel a sense of accomplishment, much like I do with Wordle, right? I mean, the many times that I have fewer attempts and discover the Word amongst my staff gives me that sense of accomplishment, much like I did with the highlights. Now, why I share this somewhat silly and simple story is when you look at this story that we just read, from all accounts, when you look onto the hill, of Golgotha, or as Luke calls it, the skull, you see three men hanging on three crosses. Now, any bystander from a distance would look upon that scene and say, well, it's basically the same criminals dying the same death. And that's what we read read here in verses 32 through 33, right? These three were criminals deserving death for what they had done. Two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That's being Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. looks exactly the same. You would not be able to tell the difference between these three hanging on the cross. And yet when you zoom in, Each man hanging speaks from the cross, and the words that they utter from their lips reveals everything you need to know about each of them. And you realize for all the similarities you might think you see, they are starkly and drastically different. And so that's what we want to examine this morning. what about each of them as they utter their own words. What do we learn about these three criminals, including Jesus or assumed criminals? So we want to look at each one of them. And the first we want to see the first criminal in verse 39. What are the words that he utters? Verse 39, we see one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now the first thing that stuck out to me about this man was that he railed against Jesus. The Greek word here is much more than just anger and what we might think when someone rails against somebody. The Greek word used here is one of abusive language, slanderous language. This man is abusing Jesus with his words. Maybe it was the crowds and the religious leaders and the soldiers mocking Jesus that this man, this criminal, felt like he could join them and mock and abuse and and criticize and ridicule Jesus. Maybe it was a sign on the cross that said King of the Jews that he felt he could abuse and rail against Jesus. We don't know, but whatever it was, he took out all of his anger upon Jesus and it reveals his belief systems. Two things that I noticed as we looked at what he said. First, he does not believe Jesus' power in the crucifixion. He does not believe in Jesus' power as he hangs on the cross. He asks him in verse 39, Are you not the Christ? Are you not the Christ? And it's not a question that he's asking him. It's one that's of ridicule and taunting more than a question. What he's asking is, How could the Son of God allow himself to be crucified and be caught in this horrible situation? Last week, we looked at the significance of the cross, right? That this cross represented weakness, ugliness, failure. It was one of shame and humiliation and defeat. And this man, this criminal, that's all he could see as Jesus hung on the cross, but this would be for us and, and for all people at the core of Jesus' life and our faith that it is one of weakness. It is one of folly. Paul, the Apostle Paul, reminds us that of that in 1 Corinthians 1, right? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For this man who is perishing, it was foolishness. It was weakness. It was shame. He could not see the power that Jesus had as he hung on the cross. Fleming Rutledge, the, the Episcopalian priest, this is what she said. I mentioned her last week in her book. But she, she says, that's why there will be so many more people in church on Easter Sunday than there are on Good Friday. We would rather have the glory of springtime than the glory of the cross. I think we're no different if we're honest with ourselves. We would rather have the glory of of the resurrection than the glory of the cross. But for followers of Jesus, we are called to carry our cross daily. For it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power. It is the power of God for those who are being saved. But there's another thing that that reveals his belief system in what he utters. He believes Jesus is a means to an end. He believes that Jesus is a means to end. What he says to Jesus is, if you are the Christ, which is the Messiah, the one that the people of God have been waiting for for centuries, then prove it and save yourself and save me. In other words, I'll believe who you are if you do these things for me. If you deliver me out of this situation, I'll know that you are the Christ. It was a test. Jesus was just a means to an end. If you get me out of this mess, From the cross, I'll believe you. Do this for me. Do that for me. Fulfill all my unmet longings. Deliver me out of these hard predicaments, and I'll believe. And Jesus became just a genie in a bottle for this criminal. He could not see Jesus for who he was. David Gooding, a British author, said this, he was prepared to believe, the criminal was prepared to believe that Jesus was the Messiah if he would do a miracle and release him from the temporal punishment that was a consequence of his crimes. When Jesus made no attempt to do that, he cursed him and his religion as a cheat. I think functionally we can many times do the same. We can honestly be in very hard situations where we could rail against Jesus, where we could put him in a situation where he has to prove himself because we are in hard, difficult places. And yet, do we take him for who he is and what he's done? He missed out on the opportunities to see Jesus for who he was through his miracles, through his teachings, through his miraculous signs. None of that mattered in that moment because he just wanted Jesus to deliver him from his situation. He could not see Jesus for who he was. And you might think, well, that's not fair. Could any of us in this same situation see him otherwise? I can't answer that for us or for you. But what I do know is that this other criminal that was on the other side of Jesus did see Jesus for who he was. And that's what we need to look at here, this second criminal. And what does he say? Well, First, he doesn't say anything to Jesus. What does he do? He rebukes that criminal that we just looked at. And what does he say in verse 40? Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, as he speaks of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's interesting about Luke's account is that he doesn't mention what Matthew actually describes. Matthew indicates that both criminals actually reviled Jesus. In Matthew 27, 44, Matthew notes, And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. So what we see here is that both men railed against Jesus. Both men were abusive. And this second criminal was just like the first. So the question then is, what moved this criminal from ridicule to repentance? What moved this man from abuse to acceptance for who Jesus was? Maybe it was his gentle patience of Jesus as he hung on the cross being ridiculed, scorned, suffering the injustice of the cross. Maybe this man heard Jesus' prayer and as he interceded for us and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Whatever it was, this man responded with repentance and faith. And that's what we see here in this man the first thing you see in this man is that he has a correct view of himself. Look at what he said. He says, you and I, talking to the other criminal, are justly rece- receiving the due reward for our deeds. We deserve this sentence. We have been given. In other words, what he's saying is, he knew that whenever he came to God, he, that he comes knowing that he deserves justice and not mercy. Notice that he never asked Jesus to be taken off the cross to come down. He has a proper view of himself. He's unlike the first criminal who wants Jesus to take him off the cross to fulfill all his wants and needs in order to prove who Jesus was. But this man understands and has a proper view that he is deserving of death because of the things that he has done. He is a criminal. He is a sinner justly deserving the sentence that he's been given. Tim Keller, as he addresses this thief, says what begins to happen in this thief is he begins to realize instead of a change in circumstances like the first criminal, what he really needs is a change in what his life centers on. Instead of asking God for the life he wants, he needs to make God his life. And that's the difference. He knows who he is. He deserves justice. He's a sinner. He has broken the law. And whatever that punishment is, he justly deserves. But it's not just a proper view of himself. He has a proper view of who Jesus is. The criminal, first criminal, saw Jesus as just a means to an end. But for this criminal, he saw Jesus on his own standing. Fleming Rutledge, as she continued to look into this, she said, somehow this criminal was enabled to see something that that day that no one else saw. He saw Jesus reigning as a king and determining the destinies of people, even in his tormented and dying state. To see him that way, Luke is telling us, is to see him as he truly is and to understand the source of his power. His power is made known only through his death. I mean, you look at this situation, and Jesus hardly looks like a king on a cross. Let alone, he does not look like God dying on a cross. He looked like weakness, emptied of his glory, and yet this criminal believed that he was the king. And with eyes of faith, he was able to see Jesus crucified and believe that his sins would be forgiven for what Jesus was doing. Here's what we see then. When you have a proper view of yourself, when you have a proper view of God, that's what true wisdom is. This man had true wisdom in being able to see who he was in light of who God was. And through this, this criminal by the grace of God exhibited both of these things. A proper view of himself and of Jesus with these words that he uttered. But he does one more thing here. Did you see that? He does something and asks for something that he doesn't deserve. And what is it? In verse 42, 43, sorry, 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Now when we hear the word remember, it's very much a passive word, right? It's to recall something that has happened in the past or something that we're supposed to think about. (coughs) But this word remember from the Old Testament was not passive. It was very much an active word. When you called out to God to remember, what it meant was that you were asking God to act on your behalf. You were asking God to use His power to save and redeem His people in times of need. And this criminal uses that word to ask God or Jesus to remember Him when He goes to His kingdom. He's asking Him to save him in the grave. After he dies. So, what's really fascinating is that both of these criminals, as they're dying and hanging on the cross, both of them ask Jesus to save them. But only one is saved. One request was made out of anger, the other was made out of humility. One wasn't sure about Jesus and asked him to prove it, the other knew he could save him and so simply asked Jesus. One man said for Jesus to save himself, the other knew that Jesus had to die so that we might be saved. One was hoping for an immediate salvation from his suffering, while the other looked for salvation beyond the grave. As one scholar said it, both were equally near to Christ. Both saw and heard all that had happened during the six hours that he hung on the cross. Both were dying men and suffering acute pain. Both were alike, wicked sinners and need of forgiveness. Yet one died in his sins as he had lived, hardened, impenitent, and unbelieving. The other repented, believed, cried to Jesus for mercy, and was saved. This was the plight of the second man in humility In recognition of who Jesus was, in recognition of who he was, he was saved. But that brings us to Jesus then. What is Jesus' response? Well, in verse 43, this is what Jesus says to this criminal that asked him to remember him. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. Now what we see in Jesus' words is a reflection of salvation. What does it mean to be redeemed, to be saved, to be delivered? Well, the first thing we hear from Jesus is that salvation is certain, right? He says, truly I say to you. When Jesus used the word truly, it meant that it was the solemn, unbreakable vow that Jesus was making to his people. And for this man to hear those words, truly I say to you, he was assured that he was going to be in paradise. But also salvation is immediate. What does Jesus say? Today, as soon as this man would pass through pain into death, he was going to be with Jesus on that very day. Salvation is immediate. But it's also personal because what does he say? He says, you will be with me in paradise. I say to you. If you've been using the companion guide that we've been reflecting on in Gentle and Lowly, by ortland this past week's reflection and the quote that we looked at and, and meditated on was this in the biblical gospel we're not given something or anything we are given a person and that is ultimately what salvation is it's not something it's not even just paradise but it is this personal relationship with our lord and savior with god himself it is intimate it is personal but also salvation is eternal. Jesus tells this man, you will be with me where? In paradise. When he heard that, it wasn't just heaven like we think about it, but it was the garden of Eden. Before sin tainted and marred all of creation that was so very good, this man would know that he, on that day, he was going to be experiencing paradise. Eden, where there would be no more pain. No more suffering, no more death, no more war. It will be eternal, forever. This intimate, personal fellowship with God and with one another that existed before sin ever entered this world. It was that paradise that he had the hopes and longings that would be fulfilled when he passed. But the last thing we see in Jesus' words is that it is gracious. It is gracious. Think about this criminal. Up until this point, he knew he was deserving death, and rightly so. He tells that to the other criminal. But in his ask, and in his faith, and knowing who, who Jesus was, he was going to be in paradise with him forever. Nothing else. And as I reflect on that, that is Grace. And it's not just salvation that is gracious. This is the graciousness and love of our Savior. It's never faith plus you do a bunch of things that enters you into paradise, but rather it is grace alone. And we see that in this interaction between this criminal and Jesus. He's done nothing. But it's because of Jesus' work on the cross that he gets to experience beauty. He gets to experience paradise forever. That's the gospel of Jesus. I was reminded of this preacher, this Scottish preacher who's pastoring a church in Cleveland, Ohio. Not in Scotland, but in Cleveland, Ohio. His name is Alistair Begg. And last year, about a year ago, this video went viral of him alluding to this portion of this criminal being entered into paradise because of Jesus. And I'm just going to quote what he says. And I don't have the Scottish accent, so I want to be as beautiful as, as Alistair Begg would say it. But listen to how he reflects on this criminal entering into paradise and the graciousness of our Savior. Think about the thief on the cross. I can't find, I can't wait to find this fellow and ask him, how did that work out for you? Because you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study, never got baptized, didn't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? What are you doing here? And this man will say, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Never heard of it in my life. Well, do you know the doctrine of scripture? Well, no. And out of frustration, he'll ask the criminal then, what basis are you here? And the criminal says, The man on the middle cross told me I can come. Now that's the only answer. That's the only answer. When you ask the question, on what basis are you here? That's That's the only answer. Because the man on the middle cross told me I can come. Or more so if I would say it, the man on the middle cross and what he did for me is the reason I'm here. It's through His love and grace and His sacrifice on the cross that allows any of us to be able to know with certainty that we will be forever in paradise with our Savior. This is why we must preach the cross of the gospel to ourselves and to each other every single day. Otherwise, we will revert quickly to thinking that it is other things. It is my good works. It is what I do, what I don't do that receives me into heaven. And we can easily forget that it is the grace and love of our Savior and what He has done for you and for me that we can know for certain that we will be with our Savior and with one another because of what He has done. Put your faith in Him. Rest upon His faith and what He has done. And you will be certain, even in the midst of the doubts, in the midst of the hardships that you experience, know that in eternity we will Experience bliss, joy, contentment, no more fear, no more death, no more war and conflict, no more bloodshed, no more discontent, no more anger. But we'll be able to experience everything as God had intended this world to be. That is ours when you place your faith in His work and death and sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sacrifice, your work, not ours, that allows us to be able to experience paradise one day. So Lord, I pray for any of us who are experiencing doubt, confusion, or any of us that are experiencing real hardship. Lord, may this be our hope this morning, the hope of Jesus that assures us of not only salvation, but of intimacy with you. Because of what you suffered, we can suffer. Because of you carrying the cross, we can carry our cross. And so, Lord, help us to have the endurance to be able to suffer well for you, to know that the joy that was set before you, you endured the shame and suffering of the cross for us. Lord, help us to remember that even as we come to the table this morning, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.